Greetings, everyone. Glad to have you here on this uh, hot day. Welcome to any who may be guests here. Brethren, we all need to do better. We in the ministry, we in the work, and uh, you brethren and you brethren around the world who later may be hearing this, you all know that. We're to grow in grace, which means God's love, God's mercy, God's, God's uh, character. We're to grow in grace, and we're to grow in knowledge. And that's a very important thing we've all got to do and keep on doing. So we need to do better, and we must learn to do everything God's way. We're here on this earth to do things God's way. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, if you would. Matthew chapter 22, a very familiar uh, passage here, but I want to start out with this. Beginning in verse 35. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What is the great commandment? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And so that's the first and great commandment. Most of you know that, but that's important to always remember. You know, you read, you'll talk to these average churchgoers around the community here, or when I grew up back in Missouri or out in California, wherever you talk to people, and if they're carnal and yet attend church, they'll usually say, well, you know, I try to keep the golden rule and, and, and live a good life or something like that. That's all they know. Well, they don't even, often don't even, don't even have memorized what the golden rule is, and they certainly don't know how to apply it. But the golden rule is not the first commandment. The first commandment is to love and worship and adore and obey God, to love God. And to love God means you will do what he says. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, plural, and his commandments are not grievous. It says in 1 John 5, in verse 3, you love God by doing what he says. You love God by letting Jesus Christ live his life in you. And you love God also by that attitude of worship and adoration and really wanting to honor God in your life at every single thing that you think and say and do. That's how you want to love God. And that's the great commandment because, frankly, you're not going to love your neighbors yourself unless you love God. Because you'll be cut off from God and you won't have his spirit, you won't have his guidance, and you'll have a limited ability to love others, yes. The good Baptists or Methodists or whatever they may be, they have certain limited ability to be kind and not to be out butchering one another. And to the degree, brethren, as you know, even in this Bible Belt area here, lots of churches and lots of professing Christians, to the degree that people read the Bible, to the degree that they try to obey God even in their human strength, people are better off. But, of course, that's not going to prevent the ultimate breakdown in society that is coming. It's just not strong enough. And it's not going to prevent the great tribulation that is coming. But to the degree people do those things, they'll be blessed. So the first commandment is to love God and to fear Him. Have that awe of the great God who gives you life and breath. And be willing to do what He says. The second commandment is, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're to try to get inside the head of your neighbor, frankly, to the degree that you can, and picture, let's say, what our black members would feel like being outnumbered by us and new, and make them welcome, love them. You young macho men, and some of you old macho men, we've all got to watch ourselves and be kind to the ladies and not come across too macho and too self-sufficient and so on, and all of us in so many different ways. Don't pick on the fat people. Don't pick on the thin people. Especially don't pick on the thin people. (laughs) You know, don't pick on anybody. 
You know what it is. Try to get inside the other guy's head. Love your neighbor as yourself in every situation and every way that you can. And that's a very, very hard thing to do and a very important thing to do. That's the second great commandment. And, of course, Jesus goes on to say, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The entire law of God, that is the statutes and judgments all through Genesis through Deuteronomy, are all based on those two great principles, telling you how to love God, how to love your neighbor. And also the prophets, that is, God says, if a nation will fear him and do his commandments, they'll be blessed. If they turn away from him, they'll be cursed. So it all involves the Ten Commandments, coming back to the Two Commandments, of course, to love God with all your being and your neighbor as yourself. And that's a very, very important thing to understand. Turn to Romans 12 now, brethren, if you would. Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to read a few verses here that are very important and, again, very familiar, I hope, to most of you. Romans 12. Verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or your rational, as it is in the margin, or your intelligent service. That, frankly, is intelligent. It is not intelligent anymore to offer an animal sacrifice. God does not intend that anymore. But what is rational, what is reasonable, what is the right thing to do is to give your body as a living sacrifice. That's what God wants you to do, each one of you. That's what God wants me to do. We've got to give ourselves to God. And do not be conformed to this world. Don't try to see all the latest movies and watch all the latest TV shows and hear all the latest music and try to be like the world. Because if you're like the world, you will go where the world is going. That is, you will literally go to hell. Using a bad expression there, but it's the truth. You will go to hell. You will go to Sheol. You will go to the grave prematurely. And if you don't ever repent, then you will go to Gehenna fire, which is the ultimate hell, the lake of fire. You will go there. Jesus talks about it as a very real thing. Not popular to talk about that today, but Jesus talked about it a number of times. So you've got to get out of the world. Come out of the world and be ye separate, God says, and touch not the unclean thing. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You've got to prove what God wants in every aspect of life. You've got to read this book. You've got to study this book, as I explained to you the last time I spoke in detail, how to study the Bible and really get it to have the mind of God. For I say to you, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Try to think humbly, soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of truth. God gives each one of us a measure of truth. But don't think you're, you know it all or you're a big shot. For as we have many members in one body, I have ten fingers and ten toes, and most of you do too, and so on. But all the members do not have the same function. So we, we in the church of God, being many, are one body. All of us should be joined together through God's Spirit. And Christ will use different parts of our body and use our bodies collectively to do his work today. We're all one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So we're to think ourselves as members. We're brothers and sisters in the church of God. There's an extended uh, family relationship there. 
Turn to verse 10. He says, be kindly affectionate. Don't be harsh to one another. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Some people are not very diligent in their work. They don't come to work on time. They don't work hard. They leave during the day to do whatever they want to do. And they're just not really trying very hard to serve God in that way at all. He says, be diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. So you're to do all those things and learn to be diligent in serving God and serving one another. He says there at the end then, do not be overcome by evil, verse 21, but overcome evil with good. Try to overcome evil with good, not with bad, not trying to lash out or whatever, but overcome evil with good. And that is to be the attitude in everything you do. Brethren, we must all learn to practice servant leadership. That's my topic today. That tells us one aspect of how to love our neighbor as ourselves. As most of you know, that is one of the themes of the living church of God. We're to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God and the true name of Christ. We're to feed the flock. We're to do these other things. And one of those themes is to practice servant leadership and we need to do that in the ministry we need to do that in the work those who are not ministers but in the work and all of you brethren need to do that all the deacons and deaconesses elders brethren all over the world we've got to do that brethren god tells us back in matthew chapter 20 and i want you to turn there now matthew uh, chapter 20 this time and i'm going to begin reading here Uh, In Matthew chapter 20 and uh, verse uh, 25, Matthew 20, 25, Jesus called the disciples to himself and said, they'd been trying to see who was the greatest here, as you know, in the previous verses. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And that's often the case. Those of us who grew up in World War II, we saw that vividly, you know, all over Germany and later all over Europe. Why, Hitler had his stormtroopers just crushing those who would try to stand up against him and having them beaten up and killed and all tortured and all that kind of thing. It was a terrible thing. And everyone went, Sig Heil, Sig Heil, and worshipped him. And if you didn't worship Hitler virtually, you were in trouble if they spotted it. He had his spies everywhere. And some of you remember seeing the big open square, uh, I think it was at the Piazza Popolo, the People's Square there where Mussolini would get up on this balcony in Rome. And they'd all say, Viva il Duce. They'd say, Viva Papa to the Pope. But they were saying, Viva il Duce. And screaming it over and over to the il Duce, he called himself, who proclaimed that his empire was a revival of the Holy Roman Empire, which indeed it was. The Hitler-Mussolini dynasty was the small revival that was up for a little while. It is and yet is not and yet is. And lasted a very short time. But that was the sixth revival, and the seventh one is yet to come within the next several years. And, of course, he was all puffed up with vanity and all this kind of thing. And uh, they were crushing those under them. Most of you know about the horrible things, the killing fields of Cambodia and the killing fields all over Asia, you know, and Laos and Vietnam and all those things that were taking place there because of Mao Zedong and the the various Chinese leaders and the communist leaders and how they brutally crushed those under them. 
There's an atmosphere of fear there. You've been reading about this as a Kim Il-sung. I need to get that straight, his pronunciation, but in North Korea. He's a dictator like that. Keep people, he keeps people in fear. But he said, it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. And frankly, each of us try, should try to do that in the right way. There's a balance in there. As your human leader under Jesus Christ and way under Jesus Christ, I should nevertheless consider myself the slave of all of you and the servant of all of you. And I really mean that. And Mr. Ames and Mr. Bryce and the rest of our top leaders should feel the same way. And I trust that they do it. In most cases, I'm sure that they do. None of us do it perfectly. But when I get up in the morning, I should think about God's work. I should think about doing it better. I should think about serving you better, not just serving myself better. I should try to make the decisions, guide the church, guide the work, so that everyone is benefited, including those in the work, including those in the church, and the whole world out there that needs the message we have. That should be the absolute focus of my life from the time I get up in the morning till I go to bed at night. I'm taking a little better care of myself physically the last, uh, well, really more just the last few months because I've started to go home a little earlier and exercise a little more uh, because of various problems. And that's so I can live longer and serve a little longer. But if I get too weak or something, then I'll have to turn it over to a younger man and this kind of thing. I'd better think, how can I best serve? And if I can't serve the best, then I better get out. That should be my focus, brethren. It really should. And that should be the focus of each one of you. Not how can we exalt ourselves, but how can we serve? So whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. I didn't just desire to be first among you. I've explained that, and I think most of you do understand. I didn't try to start my own church. I waited until they had threatened me, threatened me, threatened me, and finally were going to forcibly retire me and put me in a you know, wheelchair or rocking chair and let me do nothing. And at that point, I finally decided, well, I'm one of the three senior evangelists still, still in the church at that time. The others had all gone of the first seven or had died. Uncle Paul, my uncle, had died. Dick Armstrong had died faithfully, both of them. And uh, Raymond Cole and Marion McNair had both left to do their own thing. And only Herman Hay and Raymond McNair and I remained. And the other two men were not ready to do anything. I actually talked to them. They would not do anything at all at that point. So I felt someone's got to do something. And if I accept their retirement benefits now, and then six months or a year turn around and do something, they'll say, you're a hypocrite. You took our money and then look what you did. I thought and prayed about all those things. I thought, I have responsibility before God, and I must act. We cannot let these work wreckers come in there, Joe DeCotch and his wrecking crew, come in and literally wreck the entire work and all the things we built all those years. I would not let that, and God did not want me to let that. So we started this work, and I'm grateful that we did. But anyway... We should want to be your servant, your bond slave. The Greek word is doulos, which means bond slave or slave, and have the attitude of serving one another. And each of you should try to serve one another, not just see how important you could be and think, well, boy, I'm a deacon or I'm a deaconess or I'm a little section head in the work or department head. Look how important I am. 
That should not be the attitude. And brethren, all of us in the church are training now, as you know, to be kings and priests in tomorrow's world, you see. And all of us need to think that through in all the responsibilities we have in God's work today because we are learning lessons for all eternity in the way that we treat one another now. So let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served Christ didn't come just to be important and put others down, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Christ served and served and served, and all day long he taught, he blessed, he encouraged, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cast out demons, and all day long he was giving and giving and giving himself to the degree he could, and he had so much more to give than any of us, and of course... He had more to give even a physical sense than some of us older ministers because when he died, he was young enough to be easily my son. In other words, my older children are all older than him. Well, in fact, all four of them are now. So as Mr. Ames and I get older, we don't have the same physical energy, I guess, that Jesus had during the three and a half years of his ministry because he died at age 33 and a half. But as we have the energy and the strength and the opportunity, we're to serve and serve all day long to the extent that we can, and do God's work and help prepare for God's kingdom. That is to be the approach, and I hope that is to be the approach of each one of you, to give, to help, to serve, because we are to learn servant leadership, and that is the theme of this work. Our attitude, brethren, all of you, should be giving, helping, serving all day long. Now, giving, helping, serving doesn't mean you're a doormat, by the way. When the Pharisees and the scribes were way out of line and putting down Christ and making terrible remarks about him and threatening to kill him quite a number of times and so on, he said at one point, you snakes, you vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? That's what he told them. The son of God, he who exemplified love. Was that terrible? No, he wasn't saying it maybe with the exact voice inflection that I am, but he probably said it pretty strongly. That's what they were. They were snakes. It's once in a while it's good to call a spade a spade if your attitude is to help the person wake up or to help the people around them to wake up. Sometimes it's good to demote someone or to correct someone. Right after Jesus told Peter, you're a stone, Petras, a small stone, but upon this Petra, this large foundation stone, I'll build my work, people's, or church. You know, there are the Catholics think that made Peter the infallible pope. And yet five or seven verses later, he said, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand the things of God, but the things of men. He corrected it powerfully. Just a few verses later there in Matthew 16. He was doing it, however, in love because Peter was beginning to rebuke him publicly. And that was beginning to influence the attitudes of the other disciples when Jesus said, I'm going to have to die. And Peter said a number of times, you know, and these are you're not going to die. And boy, I'll, I'll do this and I'll do that. And in fact, Peter did try to do that. Remember, he's the one who whipped out his sword and chopped off the Roman soldier's ear. And Jesus said, put up your sword. They that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Shall I not drink the cup that my father's given me? So Peter just understood the carnal things at that point till God's spirit came into him after the day of Pentecost. Then you had a changed individual at that point. But brethren, 
being in charge and wanting to give to help to serve, as I say, it doesn't mean you have to be a doormat or agree with everyone, but your attitude in disagreeing, your attitude in teaching them, your attitude in correcting them, your attitude in moving them perhaps from one position to the other or whatever you mean to do if you're in a position of authority is to be the attitude of service. Not hurting people, but serving them and serving those around them, you see, by getting the job done better and helping even this individual grow. Because sometimes these changes help a person shake, shake a person up and help him to think more deeply about what he ought to be doing. It's got to be the attitude of giving and serving. And uh, certainly we've all got to have that. Back in Worldwide, as Mr. Aparty will remember vividly, because he was there most of that time, why we had some taskmasters. We really did. And it was really bad. One man was over a whole section of things on the uh, buildings and grounds, and he was very harsh and was kind of mean to people and one thing or the other, and a lot of the employees bridled under that. Mr. Armstrong didn't fully understand what was going on, and he didn't have, you know, the opportunity to fully get it and do anything about it for a long time. Finally, he did. We had another man who was over a certain section of the work, under this other man, and he was really an oppressor, and he would constantly hound and hound and harass those under him and uh, put them down and made their lives absolutely miserable. And I myself have talked to three or four men who worked for this fellow, and they he made their lives miserable. And I didn't realize that at the time because we had more of a hierarchical sense at that point in the ministry, and people were afraid to come and tell even me, and I didn't understand that till years later. He, I like the guy personally, you see, just he could be really friendly. And often you'll find people who will be very friendly to you if you are important, quote unquote. <laughs> but if they think you're not important, bad news, bad news, too bad for you, especially if you're under them. And, of course, we had a fellow, we had a number of ministers, one man I think especially who is in the ministry, who would try to run people's lives. And he'd tell them, do this and do that continually. And if they didn't do that or do what he said, and when he said jump, they didn't say how high, then he would harass them and harass them. And I had women calling and crying to me about it. This is back in Worldwide. We've had some of that even since that time, of course. But they were crying and saying, we can't even say in the church because if we move to another city because some of their friends did to get away from this minister then he will find out who our new minister is and call him and turn him against us and continue to harass us even over two three five hundred miles away because he thought he was some kind of a god we had a minister a few years ago who had a situation where he would kind of boss people around and 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 overdo his authority and then if they, he found these people talking to someone else in the back of the service. Then he would call the other person during the week and say, was so-and-so talking to you? And, and, you know, after service back there, he wasn't able to get right back. Or he'd say, what were they talking about? Well, pretty soon, of course, that got through the whole church because our churches are pretty small. <laughs> and they'd find out this guy is trying to exercise mind control. Mind control. That's stupid. That's wrong. We're not trying to exercise mind control, and we must not do that. So I personally had to deal with that fellow and, uh, and transfer him to help him. I wanted to save him in his ministry, not from his ministry. But then he left in the rebellion and, uh, and so on. He did appreciate it, although I did it, I think, in a right way. I would do it the same way all over again. I really would. I did it in a very loving way, but trying to help out. 
Some people think I'm a really good guy because I've tried to be a very good guy for the last 10 or 20 years uh, because I was a little harsh way back in the 1950s and 60s as a very young man, and I've repented of that over and over again and tried to do much better and uh, have been. But that doesn't mean I can't handle problems because I will handle problems if I have to. And a lot of the older ministers know that. I'll, I'll take care of it if I have to, believe me. We have had in the worldwide church and a few in our church, global or living, what we used to call in worldwide super deacons. They were the kind of deacons, sort of a little old lady pulls up in the parking lot and she parks in the wrong place. You're in the wrong place. You move over here. Now that again is ridiculous. I don't care if some little old lady parks in my spot. They have a spot out there and my boss told me to park somewhere else today and I did. I kid about that, but Cheryl said, you park over here in the shade today. She's going to get a cooler to get something and wanted to be over in the shade. But if someone parks in my, in my spot, they say they save a spot as a courtesy so I don't have to hunt for something and perhaps didn't even let them do that. But I appreciate that sometimes being busy and coming in late to preach and so on. But uh, we don't need super deacons. And any of you are deacons or deaconesses or anything else. Not just here, but you brethren around the world, of course. I'm talking to the whole church now. Get over it. That's not a big deal. It's not a big deal to be an elder. It's not a big deal in God's sight to be an evangelist. Did you know that? Some of you think, you, we used to think an evangelist was like the College of Cardinals. You know, you have the Pope and that was like Christ, I guess. And then you have the College of Cardinals. Well, who is an evangelist? An evangelist is a very weak human being who could die in the next breath, a little ant crawling around on this earth, that's all we are. We have to be subject to Christ, and Christ can remove any of us in any time, any second he wants to. And we want to be very cognizant of that. We're all very, very human. We don't have any apostles today, and we don't have any Elijahs or Elishas. Some men like to think they are, but they're not. And not in our church, I don't mean that. <laughs> but, you know, some of you know what I mean. They like to give themselves great titles, but God has not given them those titles at all. So we've got to have the attitude of humility, brethren, and of serving and helping one another. And uh, certainly that's a very, very important attitude to have, and God wants us to have that. Mr. Armstrong did not always realize those things were happening, as I say, until sometimes years later. He probably died without realizing some of those things at all, even until he died because he was older and on his trips overseas and more cut off. I don't always hear about those things until maybe weeks or months later. I do try to take care of them to the degree I can, maybe through the division head, the department head, or whatever, or sometimes directly if I have to. I will do that as I had to take care of this one minister I've talked about. So all of us must take action uh, in these areas, in these things. Mr. Ames and I need to protect both those above. That is, we need to protect any who are deacons. We need to protect any who are elders or deacons, certainly, because people can attack them or accuse, wrongly accuse, and accuse them from being hurt in a wrong way. But we also need to protect those below. You see, you've got to protect each one because each one has, has their future influenced by how you handle something. You can't just shoot from the hip and say, I've heard this, bang, you're out or you're in. No, you should not do that. You're to take your time, get the facts, counsel and multitude of counsel, ask God for wisdom, and then take action. That doesn't mean to sit on our hands forever, however. 
But certainly, the continuation of the work is involved if you just change people around too quickly. And sometimes the deacons or superior supervisors in the work uh, must be given an opportunity to repent and to change if they're doing wrong and uh, whoever is involved in these things and their future is involved and so on, their families involved and so on, uh, but also the victims of abuse or mistreatment must be heard. They have got to have a fair hearing. We cannot play the buddy system and always back up the ministry. And I've just told the ministers, the leading ministers, that, in fact, yesterday during our evangelist lunch, and they all agree wholeheartedly. We must not practice the buddy system, and we must not practice the buddy system among the leaders and supervisors around the office and just automatically keep people there because they're our friends. God will hold us accountable. We're to try to be impartial before God and the fear of God using wisdom. All of us are here to prepare to be kings, and all of us have got to learn these lessons in God's work. Turn to Luke chapter 18, brethren, at this point, if you would. Luke chapter 18. I'm going to begin reading here in verse 9. Here, Jesus spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Because some people are very righteous, and they do this and that and look down on others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I think that's beautifully worded, don't you? He prayed with himself. Didn't say he prayed to God. He was sort of praying to himself in a sense. He prayed with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Well, God doesn't tell us to fast twice a week. And, of course, sometimes the Jews or others would fast just during daylight hours or something like that, which is not necessarily a full fast anyway. But he would fast twice a week. And he paid tithes of all he possessed. That was fine. But that didn't make him necessarily better than others or able to put others down. And the tax collector, who knew he was a sinner, because most of these those who were tax collectors cooperating with the Roman authority tended to gouge people, you know, and take too much and keep part of themselves, and they were noted for that. And so he was very humble because God was apparently calling him in a certain way. He would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, that's the attitude we need to have all the time, frankly. Even when we have not done some great wrong, we know we've done certain wrong. I do certain wrong every single day that I live, and I've got to be cognizant of that. My own selfishness, vanity, lust, greed, impatience, self-centeredness, whatever it is. I do wrong, and I know that. So we've all got to be cognizant of that and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be abased. I have noticed in the ministry for the last 50-some years that I've been in the work of God, how sometimes ministers come along and they're very, very important. And I don't want to describe anyone necessarily or take time, but they begin to exalt themselves and act very important and they're the big shot. And you sense that. And I could describe examples and so on very vividly to you. Virtually every one of those either stayed with the great apostasy, the greatest apostasy in modern history, or else they're completely out. And they just, you know, they just left the church or were kicked out because they had this vanity. They, some of them went off with little false groups, but not any one of the right groups. 
Everyone exalts and exalts himself will be abased. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So you have to humble yourselves. You have to come down and say, Father, please help me. I'm very weak. Clean me up. Scrub me out. Help me to do better. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, notice this, as a little child will by no means enter it. Now, these super deacons who used to boss people around and worldwide and these elders who used to crush people under them, they didn't have that attitude. And some of them I had to deal with personally because I was superintendent of ministers for about 12 years, counting two different stints. And, of course, they didn't appreciate correction at all. If you, I did most of them a nice way. Sometimes I got rid of with some of them, but most of them I was very nice to and tried to reason with them. But they were so used to being the king of their kingdom out there, you know, they didn't want anyone butting in their little church area telling them what to do. They thought they were fancy free out there. They were the local king, the local dictator. And that's not true. I have to be responsive to Jesus Christ. And each one of you does too. And each minister does. So we've got to have that attitude. And each of us try to receive the kingdom of God as a little child. To be humble. Get it. To be humble and to be teachable. A little child is teachable. He's willing to learn in most cases. There are some exceptions perhaps. The basic little child is teachable. He's willing to learn. And that's the way all of us have got to be, brethren, perhaps more than we are. We've all got to be willing to repent and learn the lessons involved uh, in these mistakes in human relations. Think about that. These are mistakes and sometimes even sins, depending on how far it goes, in human relations. We don't always understand. Many in God's church have grown up in dysfunctional families. You know, they have. We know that. God is called the weak of the world. And their own father and mother were not happy or deserted them or the father was a drunkard and went on off or this or that or something. And they grew up in that situation. And it's harder for them to know how to interact with others because of that. So we've got to help them get over that and grow a while, perhaps, before they're put in a position of authority because they may not know how to treat others Because they themselves have not been treated right in the first place. It's harder for them to know what to do, you see, under that circumstance. Not that they're bad guys, but they just simply don't know what to do in every case. And uh, as I say, that's not always their fault. For we are the weak of the world. And so we've got to understand that and be willing to learn, be willing to acknowledge our weaknesses, be willing to change. Often, brethren, being removed from a job or from a responsibility is the kindest thing that can happen to us. Do you know that? It is the kindest thing that can happen to us. I've been removed from various jobs and responsibilities, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. But a couple of times, I remember specifically, it was a very good thing. It helped me to humble myself, to seek God harder, to pray and fast more, and all the rest of it. And even sometimes when it was unjust, totally unjust, and I knew and knew that I knew that, still it drove me to my knees. I've already told you about the time in Big Sandy where I was deputy chancellor for about three and a half years. And the students knew knew, uh, that. Mr. Tom Turner and Jerry Ruddleston are both from there, and they knew what I did there during those times. And I was teaching the truth. 
and upholding the administration, honoring Mr. Dukach and saying, let's pray for him and let's pray for headquarters, let's get the work of God going and so on. But they kicked me out because I did also talk some about Mr. Armstrong and about prophecy and about the law of God. And one of the leading ministers came to visit me and I said, I heard that these two young men are against me. Why are they trying to get me? I'm not hurting them. I'm not talking about them at all. He said, well, I don't fully understand but he said, they have an agenda. He says, I see that, and I don't quite know what the agenda is. But he said, you're right in their way. You keep talking about Mr. Armstrong as though that was the golden years of the work. You keep talking about the prophecies of the Bible. And he said, they don't seem to want to talk about those anymore. And you talk about God's law, and they don't seem to be wanting that anymore. And here you are talking about this whole way of life, and they're trying to bring in this other way of life. And here you are over the college, and you're also over, uh, not co-pastor, but at least uh, preaching regularly once a month in the biggest single church on earth. Because Big Sandy had 1,550 people there and about 1,400, 1,400 were in attendance nearly every Sabbath, you see. And I was preaching regularly. Later they split the church in the morning and afternoon, but they hadn't done that yet when I was there. And so I was preaching regularly there about God's law and God's way and Christ living the same life within us. He lived 1,900 years ago. Oh, they didn't like that. He said, they've got to get rid of you. And I said, what can I do? He said, well, you can pray a whole lot and be very low key. (laughs) Well, okay, I did pray a whole lot. How do you be low key when you're deputy chancellor and you're up doing all this? I tried to be humble, but, you know, they got me. They were going to get me. And that hurt. But on the other hand, that drove me to my knees and helped me to fast and pray and examine myself over and over. And then I was able, and I, I didn't plan it, it happened to me, but I was right there at headquarters for I was able to have lunches and meals regularly. And I better not name all the names, but about, frankly, 12 or 15 key men all through the work and find out what's going on. But this one and this one, because I've been their Bible teacher, their minister, performed their wedding, whatever. And they would tell me. And I thought, wow, this thing is even worse than I had imagined. So it helped me to get ready to do this, if you understand what I mean. And they told me, no, they're going to, they're going to change everything, this one evangelist said. I said, everything? Yes. He said everything. And they're going to use the vehicle of the old and new covenants. They're going to put everything Mr. Armstrong believed under the old covenant to get rid of it because they can't stand Mr. Armstrong. And now we've learned, of course, that that's true. They've even taken up the stream that he built. They've taken up his name and the four pioneer students right out of the concrete. They've literally tried to destroy every trace of Herbert W. Armstrong because of the depth of resentment and envy they had against that man whom God used for 52 years and want to stamp that out. But God's not going to let it be stamped out of the minds and hearts of uh, tens of thousands of people who did know the truth. And he, his pioneering activities will be very greatly honored now and in tomorrow's world. But anyway, that's what happened. And uh, so that being put down was good for me because it not only drove me to my knees and gave me time to think and examine and go back and prove and reprove all the basic things, but it helped me have time to check up, you know, on what was going on more than I ever would have if I'd been back at Big Sandy so, big, so busy. I didn't know what was going on. So it worked out for good. All things work together for good to those who love God's law, to those who love God, I should say, and who are called according to his purpose. Remember Romans 8, 28. 
So we always want to realize that if God removes us or something, uh, if some of you are in charge of a department and someone needs to be removed occasionally or something, certainly you need to check it with your superior before you do that here in the work. We're small enough for one little family, but we may do that on occasion, which can help, you know, get rid of the problem and also help uh, the others around the problem. That can sometimes be the kindest things that can happen to us. Many lessons are learned that way. Sometimes the Peter principle may be involved also. Some of you don't know what the Peter principle is, but a famous uh, term in management books for the last, I guess, 20 years or so is the Peter principle. I'm sure Mr. Bardot's heard of that principle. And uh, that is the principle that if you put a man up beyond what he's able to do, you see, you're literally not just hurting others, you're hurting him. You're making him a failure. He might have been okay as a deacon, but if you suddenly make him an elder and he really isn't qualified to be an elder, then you've set him up for failure. You see, you've got to think, yes, he was a good deacon, but does that automatically qualify him to be a good elder? No. One of the best deacons we've ever had in the whole church of God that I know about was a man named Bill Humberger. And I've told you about him before, a very humble uh, peanut farmer from Texas who came out, gave his life, gave his pickup truck, served all day long and helping and giving and serving and so on in the work and became the uh, janitor and maintenance and all-around guy in the work and didn't even take a salary for years. He just lived on his savings plus giving his work, his uh, truck to the work and even some of his life savings and everything else. Just a wonderful man. And several of us evangelists talked about it one time. I don't remember who they were, but there were three or four of us. And we said, all of us, we agreed. We said, you know, Bill Homberger may have a higher position in God's kingdom than any of us. And that's true. What he had to do with, he did wonderfully. But he was not qualified to be an elder. And he knew that, I'm sure, because he had snaggled teeth. He dropped out of school at in the sixth grade and so he butchered the language he had a high squeaky voice it wasn't high and squeaky but kind of weak and he wasn't able to teach and preach and write and you know that kind of thing but he was a wonderful deacon but he didn't have the capacity also to be an elder an elder has to be apt to teach you see and a person like that would not fit that qualification even though he would be a wonderful deacon and he might get a greater reward in God's kingdom forever than any of the elders or any of the evangelists. And I mean that, brethren. God rewards us according to what we do with what we have to do with. Unto whom much is given of him shall much be required. You know how that works, that scripture. Luke 12, 48. There's a principle there. There's a principle there. How God judges each one of us. So we've got to be aware of that. Don't put people up beyond what they're able to do. That can cause problems for the people under them, and it can cause problems for the individual himself. I, for instance, may be uh, loving and serving a person by removing him from a job or position. That may sound strange. I'm not trying to get ready to do that, so don't get any of your worried who's going to get fired. I'm just saying I, I may do that. I'll put myself as the bad guy here rather than pick on Mr. Ames or Mr. Bryce or someone else. But I, I may keep him from failing, which will help, you know. In other words, he won't go through that humiliation. I could just remove him before he, he uh, makes an ass of himself, as we might say, and fails utterly. And I might keep him in the meantime from hurting others more. And so that will be good all the way around for me or his supervisor or whatever to guide that that way. 
uh, I may be helping him learn a lesson that he could not learn any other way. You read books on management and they tell you that to be good to others, to build them, to help each one achieve his human potential. But if a guy doesn't have the human potential or the training or the experience or the temperament to be somewhere and you put him where he doesn't belong, you put a square peg in a round hole, you're hurting the man or the woman. They may not belong in that round hole, you see. They may not fit there. there be aggravation, aggravation going on. And the best thing is for you to remove them from that and give them something else to do or whatever. So we've got to be sure. But I, or whoever the supervisor is, must be sure, absolutely sure, that my motive, my motive had better be love and service, not trying to hurt somebody. And also, I'd better be sure that I get the facts reasonably straight and counsel and prayer before I do it. I say reasonably straight because sometimes we've had men in the work of God in the past and more recently too that wait so long to get all the facts that nothing ever happens. You know, there's a happy medium. You can't get all the facts, quote unquote, but you better get enough facts to be absolutely sure before you act. So we've got to be sure to how we do these things for we are here, brethren, you are and I am to learn lessons for all eternity. All eternity. And brethren, any job you have now, even if you're given sometimes, some of you in a more important job, a lesser job or whatever, any job, anything you have in God's church now is, is just nothing, up or down, whatever, compared to what you're going to have in eternity. If you make it into God's kingdom, you see, why that all this little stuff, are you a deacon or assistant deacon? Were you a, a department head or assistant department head? What's that going to amount to 10,000 years from now? Nothing. Nothing. If you do the best you can where you are, God watches that, and he may give the associate pastor or the deacon or assistant deacon or someone who isn't anything a far more important job than he gives somebody who has some title. I think I've told you before, so I don't want to wear you out, but I, I do want you to think this through. Lest people get hurt about things as you're shifted around from time to time. I used to think, and it wasn't just me, Mr. Armstrong thought too. I think I got it from him, but I don't want to blame him for everything. <laughs> I thought myself that being student body president was a very, very important thing. Because that was the big deal in the college. You know, the biggest single job you could have as a student was to be student body president. Well, Mr. Ames was student body president and, and uh, perhaps uh, 10 years earlier or, or or 13 years earlier, I was student body president when I came to college, and that was fine. But brethren, as I looked through the student body president in the list, and I could go through them all the way from 1951 through 1965 or 7, about 9 out of 10 of them fell away, and not even in the church anywhere. Interesting. They just fell away. Why? Well, they had ability, but some of them were kind of cocky young men. It went to their head and so on. So that, you see, that job did not guarantee them some great job in tomorrow's world. Believe me. And whatever you job, job you may have in the work today or in the church today or you brethren out there around the world, if you're a deaconess or assistant deacon or a deacon or whatever you're in, you know, it doesn't make any difference. Some of you local elders, you're doing a wonderful job and we're grateful for that. But that does make you automatically a great hero in tomorrow's world. It just does not. Each of us has to do the best we can humbly before God, fearing God and serving one another as we do that. 
Turn to 1 Timothy at this point, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, I want to cover something here. Again, you're perhaps familiar with, but I want to apply this to all of us. This doesn't just apply to elders. It is particularly applying to elders, but the principles apply to everybody. Because, as I've said before, we're all going to be elders in tomorrow's world. We're all going to be kings and priests and judges over the earth. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. This is a faithful saying, Paul writes, under inspiration. If a man desires the position of a bishop or an overseer, he desires a good work. The term bishop and elder are used interchangeably, by the way, in Paul's writings. So if a man wants to be an elder, he desires a good work. Now notice, some people get this mixed up. They think it means that if you desire to be an elder, that's a good thing. No, it does not say that. If you know that you do not have the qualities of an elder, you're not able to be apt to teach, you don't really know the Bible, you tend to turn people off because of the way you treat them or whatever it may be, you shouldn't desire to be an elder. And if you need to be an elder, God will make you an elder anyway. (laughs) But you'd better be sure that you need to be and God guides you and those above you see that. You're not just to push to be an elder. The ones who push to be an elder generally get in terrible trouble and always have in God's word. Not just from us, but from God himself. But you do desire a good work. That doesn't mean your desire is good, but the the job is a good job. A bishop or overseer, an elder then, must be above reproach. The word blameless does not mean, as we take it in the English language, perfect. Otherwise, I don't belong here. Mr. Ames doesn't belong here. None of us belong here. None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. But it means above reproach. In other words, we do not have any great big glaring sin. The husband of one wife, temperate, see, very careful how you conduct your life, sober-minded, not stupid and silly and wild, of good behavior, hospitable, you try to be good to others and have them over and serve them, able to teach, or as the old King James had, apt to teach. You have to have the capacity to teach and to obviously teach the Bible. You have to know the Bible and have the capacity as well. Some know the Bible but can't teach it. They can't make sense of it and make others it make it interesting and meaningful to others. They can sort of understand, but they you know they they can't impart it to others in a, in a right way. Not given to wine, then say you shouldn't drink wine, but you're not to be given to it. You're not to be drinking a lot. Not violent. And some people have a temper and they want to get violent. An elder should not be that way. Not greedy for money. Always wanting to get more money, and bigger salaries, and so forth. But gentle. See, an elder, a leader in God's work in any capacity ought to be gentle, not harsh and mean, gentle, not quarrelsome, not stirring things up all the time, not covetous, wanting more and more, one who rules his own house well, having his children submission with all reverence. He doesn't have perfect children, nobody ever has, but he's to have his children in submission. They're not to be wild and so on. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, and that requires the help of his wife as well, of course. And all you ladies understand that around the world and here. A wife is to be submissive to her husband in God's church. If a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? This is one of the 12 places where the term church of God is used, the true name of the church. Not a novice, a newcomer. See, sometimes a person is put in a position of authority as an elder or or department head or something, and he's very new to the church. 
or very new to the work, and that often can get him in trouble because he's, he's so new he makes mistakes he wouldn't make if he'd been around and tried and tested longer. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have good testimony among those who are outside. Sometimes a person can fool those inside, but those outside perhaps may know that he is a drunkard or that he's an adulterer or that he has always been kind of a deadbeat or lost all kinds of jobs or whatever, and that can hurt him as well, lest he fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. So uh, obviously uh, we're to be careful, lest the devil take advantage of any of those things. So we've got to be very careful in who we appoint over various departments in the work or in the church or some of you in your own business or whatever. People should be tried and tested as much as we can do in a practical way. And that's very, very important. A novice or a person of a weak character, perhaps, because of a background, should normally not be put in charge because he might abuse uh, the ministry or the deaconship or whatever he's in. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, if you would. Galatians now, uh, chapter 5, and I'm going to begin reading here in verse 22. Again, a very uh, basic section, but we need to apply it to this thing of servant leadership. You serve people as you lead them. That's the whole theme. You need to learn to love, to help, to build, to serve one another. Galatians 5, and I want to begin reading here. Uh, whoops, went way past Galatians 5 in my marker here. In verse, uh, uh, let's go, turn to Galatians 5 and uh, verse uh, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit. He's talking here about God's Holy Spirit. Now, what is the fruit of God's Holy Spirit? Is love, love toward God, first of all, to love and worship God, to serve Him, to fear Him always and keep His commandments, to love God, to appreciate what He wants, to adore Him, to put Him first in your life. Joy. Some people are in the church and they have very little joy because they're really tormented inside and that can hurt as well. Some of them had a spirit of bitterness or a spirit of resentment that's deep and that can hurt their joy. They may need to get over that before they're given too much uh, of a responsibility, you see, thinking again about job, people in jobs because that can be that hurt uh, that bitterness uh, can be taken out on others in various situations. Joy, peace. They need to be a person of peace, not anger. Some people have repressed anger. And when you sense that, you've got to be careful. Long-suffering. All of us have got to be long-suffering. Not just ready to fly off the handle and go do this and that. God does not want us to do that. That's exactly contrary to God's word. But to be long-suffering and uh, put up with problems and be patient in the way we handle the problem and the way we handle others. Kindness. It's such a tremendous thing. God says back in Proverbs, the thing that is wanted as a man is loving kindness. Some of you remember that. It's toward the end of the book of Proverbs. And that's so important, this attitude of loving kindness. Goodness. Wanting to do good and be good. Faithfulness. Where you're loyal. You're steadfast. Your word can be counted upon. Gentleness. Again, not harshness or meanness to where you're going to yell at someone or throw things or whatever, but gentleness. Self-control. Certainly a leader in God's church and any leading Christian 
would have self-control. And how do you have that? Through God's Holy Spirit. So we've got to have those things, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We have crucified the flesh if we're converted. Now, that doesn't mean we're perfect. And certainly sometimes, you know, as I say, I'll go home and I'll slam the door and kick the cat. I'm exaggerating. We don't have a cat. (laughs) But you know what I mean. We'll make mistakes occasionally. We understand that. And we've got to forgive one another. But these are the ideals. These are the things we're shooting for. This is the way that we grow toward. This is the Spirit of God. And we should be more like that every year that we live. If we live in the Spirit, you know, some people are telling around there, I guess, well, we just live in the Spirit. Okay, well, that's nice to talk about. But he said, let us walk in the Spirit. Let's walk that way of life, of kindness and mercy and self-control and humility and love and joy and peace. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, you know, by treating each other wrongly, envying one another. No, we don't want to do that. So these are things we've got to think of in all of our Christian lives, but thinking about any job that any of you may have as a deacon or deaconess or, uh, uh, you know, a section head or department head or division head or uh, an elder or minister, whatever in God's church, we want to especially be that way because that's what God wants in his leadership very, very much. We've got to try to put on Christ in all those areas of our lives. Turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, brethren. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning verse 1. Paul writes, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? He says, How, do you, how dare you get all upset and go down the street and go before some worldly court? You're supposed to be in God's church. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world Yes, brethren, you've heard me read that many times. That's the whole point. That is one of the main reasons we're here. That is one of the main reasons we are called now. We're called to help do the work of God today, and we're called to help prepare to rule the world tomorrow under Jesus Christ. Don't you know that's why we're here? We're called to judge the world. The whole world will be judged by Jesus Christ and the true saints of God. And remember, brethren, and any of you new brethren particularly, some of you have grown up in some of the Protestant churches or Catholic churches, and when they use the term saint, you know, every now and then you find that Pope John Paul is going to sanctify some saint or whatever term they use for it, you know, and make a great big deal and a great big huge procession. Well, that's ridiculous. God doesn't do that. Any single Christian in God's church that has God's spirit is called a saint. By God, Paul wrote to, you know, the the brethren and all the saints at Rome and all the saints here and there. Every true Christian is a saint. He's a saint because the word saint means holy. He's a saint because he has God's spirit within him. He's not perfect yet, but he has the presence of God right in him through the Holy Spirit. So we're called to judge the world. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Being a division head or department head or section head, you see, in the church of God, you need to learn these lessons. And that's important. God lets us practice. He lets us learn and practice the government of God today so we can rightly administer the government of God in tomorrow's world. And so he said, if the world would be judged by you, aren't you now worthy to decide these smaller issues that come up? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? 
We're going to judge, as I put it, the angelic hosts, great powerful beings who shine in glorious brilliance. But they're going to be our direct servants. And they already are, in a sense. They're invisible, but they'll even be more direct and we'll see them. And perhaps give them instructions under Christ in tomorrow's world. How much more things that pertain to this life. If then you have judgment concerning the things pertaining to this life. Farmer Jones' cow jumps over into Farmer Smith's vegetable patch and eats it up. I've used that example <laughs> too much probably. You know, people get upset and have little feuds and fights with one another. Who are they to go to? To the carnal judge down the street who's an agnostic or he's a, maybe he's something or other. Not to name other groups necessarily. Who are you going to go to? Uh, do you appoint? Or the implication is, as some of the translations even have it, why? It's a question. Why do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Why would you do that? You ought to want to come to those in the church to realize they have God's spirit. You say, well, I know then they're not perfect. And so you think the guy down the street is perfect who doesn't even know God. Is that the case? No, that's not the case. They don't even have God's spirit in the first place. It's much better to go to your brother or to go to before the church if there is a serious problem. Of course, you read first. Uh, you read Matthew eighteen fifteen. If there's a personal problem, first go to your brother, then take two or three others with you, then bring it to the church. I say this to your shame: Is it so that there's not a wise man among you in God's church? Isn't there a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? So again, brethren, you see the situation. We are here now in training to be kings and priests and judges. Yes, because the kings were also judges. You read about Moses and how these cases were brought to him and how David had the cases brought to him. And Solomon, remember the two women came and had this little baby and Solomon had to judge, you know, and all that kind of thing. Yes, that's what we're being trained to do right now. And so in God's church, we've got to think that way. We've got to learn God's law. We've got to read these examples all the way through the Old Testament and then understand the spirit of the law and how it would apply in the New Testament. So we must learn now to practice servant leadership in God's church. Turn to 1 Peter at this point. 1 Peter, near the end of your New Testament here, 1 Peter chapter 5. And again, here's something to the elders at the beginning. But it applies to every one of us because we're training to be far more than elders. You ladies sitting here are going to be far more important than any elder, any minister, any evangelist that's ever been heard of in a few years once you're members of God's family. So we're all training to learn these lessons together. The elders who are among you, I exhort, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, Peter writes, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd doesn't say rule like a dictator. Be gentle as you would with sheep. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Serving as overseers, not by constraint. You do this and you do that or I'll fire you. No, you don't talk that way to those under you. That is exactly the wrong way to talk to those under you. Not by constraint, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. Don't act like a dictator, but being examples to the flock. Each of us should try to be an example the best way we can, and especially those who are leaders. If you're a section head or a department head or 
or an elder or deacon in the church, certainly you need to have this thought in mind. I've got to be an example. I'm held to a little higher standard. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. And all of you who are younger physically, and certainly those of you who are younger spiritually, would apply. Some new person may come in. He's already 80 or 90 years old, but he's very new in the church. He needs to have that principle in mind. I know the first man I ever baptized, I was 21 years old. I think I've told you this before, but I baptized this man. His name was A.M. Coffin, and he was 84 years old. So he was exactly four times my age. <laughs> he was old enough to be my great-great-grandfather. Uh, and I, I couldn't help thinking about that, but he was humble, and he, he was converted. Later he came out to college, and later he came to the feast and kept on coming till he died, and I think he was really converted. But I was very young, but he respected me. I didn't ball him out. A young evangelist is not to ball out an older man, Paul tells Timothy. Don't rebuke him, but entreat him as a father. You know, talk to him lovingly. Well, Mr. Coffin, just what the Bible says and help him. But don't say, you so-and-so, I'm going to, you know, you don't do that to anybody. And certainly not to an older man. So the younger people should have an extra measure of humility. And God wants you to. You younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Submissive to one another, trying to learn from one another and be clothed with humility. As I've said, boy, that's a rough one, isn't it? <laughs> to be clothed with humility, just to be covered with humility all day long. Some people, brethren, I found, take humility as a sign of weakness. I've noticed in my earlier ministry, not when I first started out, I was really young, but by the time I got to be 35 to 50 or something, I was very forceful and, and very confident and so on and so forth. And uh, then as I've gotten older, if I'm more kind, I think some people think you're not sure of yourself because you don't come on like that. No, I, I still can get roused up. I don't care how old I am, but you're to try to be kind and to try to be humble. And I'm trying, <laughs> and you are too, I trust. We've all got to try harder. And uh, don't take it as a sign of weakness. It's, you know, Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. I think you remember that. Numbers 12, verse 3. The most humble man on the face of the earth. Yet, of course, Moses lashed out at Israel on occasion when he had to. But basically, God knew him in his heart. He was really submissive to God. He had the deep, profound fear of God more than anyone else of those three to six million Israelites, the most humble man on the face of the earth. So all of you be submissive and be clothed with humility. Be kind and gentle and helpful and serving toward one another. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you, you see, in due time. That doesn't mean he's going to exalt, exalt you next week or next month or even next year in due time. Some of you may never be a deacon or an elder or an evangelist or whatever you want to be. But if you're learning this lesson, you will be given a job so much greater than all of these titles of student body president or evangelist. I think I've told you about the picture of the, uh, of the evangelist and the, whatever the term was, the, the vice presidents back in the 1969 envoy. And again, and how virtually all of them are gone now. How important are they? Some are dead. Some are let out of God's work completely and all the rest of it. No, we're not very important in this life. We're like so many worms crawling around here and uh, very weak compared to what we shall be. 
So the main thing is to understand we're here to learn lessons and to humble ourselves before God, humble ourselves before our fellow man, be willing to take correction. Get this. Be willing to take correction. Be willing to learn. Be willing to change. And then you'll be in God's kingdom and have a much bigger job than whatever job you might have now. So humble yourselves that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. God does care for you and he loves you. And he wants to work with you. He may rebuke and chasten you as he does every son he loves. Every son. He may fashion and mold you. He may test you on occasion. But that's because he loves you. He wants to get all the rough edges, just like a diamond polisher polishing a diamond. He wants to get all the rough edges off the diamond so the diamond will absolutely shine with beauty and so forth in due time. So that's what God is doing, and we've got to really understand that as we go along. So do understand that, and remember, uh, these principles apply to all Christian leaders, not just to ministers. Have this humility and this fear of God and kindness to one another. Verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And brethren, the devil, if we misuse our office, if I misuse my office and crush others under me, others can become so bitter that they will leave the church and I might be held responsible for that. And I have to understand it in the fear of God. And yet, of course, I have to sometimes change one person to another job or to put a square peg in a square hole and in love. And if they get better in spite of that, that's their problem, not my problem. But we've all got to understand what we do is to be done with that understanding and the fear of God. So be sure that we're aware Satan could take advantage of a situation. Satan could make someone get a spirit of bitterness. And, and if we hurt someone, crush someone, take advantage of others in the work, that can really turn them off from eternal life. So resist Satan, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Then, notice verses 10 and 11 now. But may the God of all grace, and God is the God of grace, the God of goodness, the God of mercy, who called us to, but the Greek word here is ice, E-I-S, into. He didn't just call us up to the foot of the mountain to see the glory. He called us into His eternal glory. We're going to have that glory. Our face will shine like the sun. He called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus uh, after you have suffered a while. Yes, he's going to give you that glory after you have suffered a while. Yes, we all go through trials and tests. Then perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. God will work with you to establish you, to strengthen you, to settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So brethren, have that faith in God that Christ is the head of the church. Have that faith that God loves you, but be willing to learn the whole attitude of serving. That does not come natural to most of us. We want to be important. We want to be in charge. We want to correct those unders real strongly when things don't seem to be going just right. We've got to be very careful of that. And we must be sure that we don't hurt others. We must be sure we don't hurt the work. We must be sure that Satan does not take advantage of this. So 
Let's remember this. Both up and down the hierarchy, so to speak, we must always humble the self. Those who are in charge need to be humble, and those who are under uh, others need to be humble to take correction, to learn lessons, to grow together in God's family, God's kingdom, so we can fully be in the real kingdom when it's fully established under Christ at his second coming. So remember, God is testing us. God is fashioning us. God is molding us. God is teaching us lessons for all eternity. And the job we'll have in eternity is so much more important than any job we can be given now or any job that might be taken away now. There's no comparison. Keep your eyes on the big picture. Never get your feelings hurt. Never turn aside. Keep your eyes on the kingdom, on the big picture. That's vital.